Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. What's love got to do with the Stick to Wrestling podcast? I want to thank Tina Turner for writing that song about her favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Welcome to year four of Stick to Wrestling. I can't believe it either. My name is John Adams. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. If you have 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a raw bone podcast. A couple of things. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has two guys fighting with chairs in his avatar. You also want to be part of our Facebook group to be part of it. Just search Stick to Wrestling. Asked to join and you're in a lot of cool conversation results. We answer your questions, all the good stuff. And if you would like to contribute to the stick to wrestling podcast, just hit me up on um, my email address, pro wrestling archives at gmail.com. You can uh, PayPal me there. No amount is too small and certainly no amount is too large. I've been looking forward to this show. Jim Valley is going to be our guest. Jim, I've been looking forward to having you on, man. How you doing? I'm doing okay, but first, I've got to stop you for one second, John. I mean, Uh-oh. look, cut the crap. Uh-oh. We all know that Tina Turner didn't write What's Love Got to Do With It about the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Sure she did. We all know that she wrote simply the best ah. about the Stick to Wrestling podcast. <laughs> You're good because you had no idea I was going to say that you came up with that in like five seconds. Wow. That's what I do. (laughs) And you do it well. Jim, you are the king of recovery. You are the Jerry Lawler of podcasts. You're the Elvis Presley of wrestling podcasts. Why are you the king of recovery? Well, I've almost died six times. I'm 6-0 against death. And uh, when I was at the UW Medical Center toward the end of the year, you know, I was Innovated. I was in the hospital for five months from August to January of this year. And uh, most of that time, I was innovated. And a lot of it, I don't remember. And so toward the end, when I was more conscious, one of the nurses was laughing. I was like, what's so funny? She was looking at one of my medical charts. And in the official records, my official medical records, Apparently, one of the doctors wrote that uh, he was very impressed with how my recovery was going. And I looked at him and I said, well, of course, I'm the effing king of recovery. And he put that in the charts that even the F word is there. I don't know if I can swear or not, but that's that's what it said. I was the (laughs) you're you're swearing for accuracy. Yeah. Five months in the hospital and you made it. Yeah, I mean, I've had this before. It's a rare autoimmune condition that I was diagnosed with in 2012. I almost died several times then, and I almost died several times in uh, 2020. So I am the effing king of recovery. Well, you know, Jim, I I thought about this. How do you want to die? You thought about that. Come on. Probably in my sleep. I don't know. You see, that, that's what everyone says. I'm going to steal a joke from Anthony Jeselnik. I want to die surrounded by my family and friends in an apartment fire. <laughs> yes, that's Anthony Jeselnik for you, ladies and gentlemen. 
Jim, it's good to have you on the show. Topic today, 30 years ago this week, Ric Flair was fired from World Championship Wrestling after what felt like an endless feud with Jim Hurd that pretty much started as soon as he joined the company. You know, to this day, I still don't understand it. You know, Ric Flair has put up with and gone along with so much stuff in his career. I mean, he doesn't really have a reputation for being difficult. If anything, he has a reputation for being too easy. Yeah. It's like, I, I, it, it doesn't, it still doesn't make any sense. 2020, they say, is often hindsight. And looking back, even 30 years, I just don't understand it. I, I mean, I get some of it. And I mean, it started, it really, the problem started in 87, 88. Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes just were not seeing eye to eye. Sometimes, you know, Dusty had been Rick's boss for like four years. And sometimes, you know, relations get strained. Dusty threatened to have Rick lose to Rick Steiner, who was not a big star by that point, at Starcade 88 in five minutes. And Rick took it really seriously. I don't think Dusty meant it. I think Dusty was just speaking out of anger. So Dusty winds up on the outs. And then I think what when it really started... I mean, Rick, there was always friction between Rick and Jim Hurd. And then the day came. I remember it was right around Thanksgiving 1990, where I first heard about this, that there was a chance Dusty Rhodes was coming back to the NWA. And at first, I couldn't believe it. It sounded like something from The Onion that didn't exist back then, but that's okay. And it slowly but surely turned into a reality that Dusty was coming back. And and when... That happened, I felt like, I don't always call predictions correctly, but this one I called, I'm like, I don't think Ric Flair is long for this company. You know, it's amazing, too, because Ted Turner reportedly loved Ric Flair. You know, Ted Turner kept a casual eye on the NWA World Championship Wrestling, whatever you want to call the company, but he knew Ric Flair, and, you know, he wouldn't buy the company unless Ric Flair was part of the sale, yet somehow, and I don't even understand why or how, that was kept from Ric Flair. Yep. Which is amazing. And it's like also... I mean, Ric Flair was so close to Jim Crockett that that Jim Crockett was part of his wedding party, okay? I mean, these guys were friends, and, and he never let Ric know. Incredible. And it's like, why don't you let Ric Flair know? And also, it's like, if if I'm running a company and I know that the owner, Ted Turner, likes this guy, I'm probably going to do my best to make that guy happy and to spotlight that guy to make Ted Turner happy. It just, the logic is is bizarre. Yeah, and if you really think about it, Ric Flair, like, if if crockett had known okay you know rick they're not doing the sale without you let's say rick leverages this into an extra i don't know hundred thousand dollars a year quarter million dollars a year that is a trip to the vending machine for ted turner yeah and it's also you know finally getting competitive with what rick flair could make and did make according to him in uh, 
his first time in WWE. So it's like competitive salaries for the time. And it's like the fan base, as we saw, reacted poorly and loved Ric Flair, good guy or bad guy. The fan base wanted Ric Flair. And it just, there's this thing about pro wrestling where outsiders don't seem to understand it. They think it's an alternative universe where you can bring in Oz and Dorothy and the Tin Man and all of this stupid alternative reality stuff as opposed to it being a morality play fought with fake fighting. But, you know, it's just, it always goes through the cycles and pro wrestling never learns. No, it doesn't. And, you know, there's there's something about the whole thing. I mean, inside, like the outsiders totally don't get it. But on some level, the insiders totally don't get it. Like I, I have been around wrestlers and they have looked me in the eye and they're, and they're like, look, you are we will never get pro wrestling unless you've been in the ring. You'll never get it and you won't know about it. And I look at them and say. Vince McMahon, and, and like they're taken aback by the response, and it's like, oh, he's the one exception. Well, how can he be the one exception? But so far, he is. Well, it's like, for example, you know, we just saw it with Adnan Verk in WWE. You know, a great announcer, a guy who's made a great name in sports, who knows a ton about sports, but nothing about wrestling. And because of his sports schedule, he was never going to have time to learn about wrestling. You know, another example is, you know, I don't know if you know this, John, we can, this is another podcast for another day, but I was brought to Stanford for a WWE announcer audition. The announcer audition that went to Todd Grisham. And, you know, I had to pretend that I only knew so much about pro wrestling because I knew that if I showed too much, that I'd be automatically disqualified. Yep. It's such it's such a backwards way of thinking. It's it's bizarre, but that's just the way pro wrestling is. It hates itself. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely true. I mean, they they don't it was like being on being in the monkeys. If you were a musician, they didn't want you. Yeah. You know, Ric Flair for many people, the greatest of all time. But for some reason, the guy who's now in charge of the company doesn't want the greatest of all time. It would be like if during the steroid scandal, when uh, Vince McMahon brought in Jerry Jarrett or Bill Watts to run the company, if Bill Watts just automatically fired Hulk Hogan. You know, it's like the guy who made the name for the company, it's like, you don't get rid of that guy. No. You know, one thing I will say about Jim Hurd, like Ric Flair, there have been times when he has been just, you know, too easygoing. Like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do that to put Kerry yeah. Von Erich over. I'll do that for Mike Von Erich. But at this point, he was he was leveraging the fact that he had the championship. He was leveraging the fact that he was Ric Flair, and why not? But, you know, he made it perfectly clear a couple of times that, like, look, you know, if I don't get what I want, I'm not dropping the championship. And I want to make something clear. Ric Flair is my favorite wrestler of all time. And there is a big gap between Rick and whoever number two is on, on whatever given day, Jerry Lawler, Terry Funk, et cetera. 
you know, Rick is number one. But in a weird way, I'm going to say something a lot of people might not like. It was kind of a boss move for Jim Hurd to say, you know what, Rick? We're not giving you what you want, and you can just you're, – you're fired. Go home. Don't worry about losing the championship. Was that a smart move? I don't know, but that, that took stones. I guess, but also <laughs> it also showed how much he didn't know because he didn't understand that there was a deposit still on the old NWA title. Yep. And he didn't know that Ric Flair was owed his deposit plus interest from however many years ago. I mean, that just showed how much, you know, due diligence Jim Hurd didn't do. And also the fact that, you know, he was willing to drop the title to Barry Windham and told him that. But no, you know, Jim Hurd said, F you, we're coming to get the belt as opposed to having him lose to Barry Windham on TV, which would have helped Windham or whomever. I mean, the WCW slash NWA title lost a lot of prestige in that time frame. I mean, they had to go and get a freaking Dusty Rhodes PWF title and go to like a trophy company and stick a couple of stickers on it that said world heavyweight champion. I mean, how embarrassing. That's just embarrassing. It was embarrassing. And by the time WCW and Heard got the physical championship belt back, it was too late. The damage had already been done. They had, had Bobby Heenan and Ric Flair displaying that championship belt on WWF television. And WWF was so smart. Instead of, you know, just, okay, forgetting about the belt, they gave Ric Flair an old tag team championship belt and they distorted it. I mean, just marvelous thinking. Well, not only that, but, you know, yeah, Ric Flair came in and called himself the real world champion and Bobby Heenan called him the real world champion, but they're, they're heels. What did Gorilla Monsoon say about the title? I don't remember. What did he say? What is that thing? I've never seen that before. You know, the so-called real world champion, they basically, you know, the babyface announcers belittled the title on TV. It's like, yeah, Ric Flair had maybe some credibility and yeah, Hulk Hogan put over Ric Flair to a degree, but they ripped on that title. That belt was like, what's that thing? I've never seen it before. You know, it looks like it came from Cracker Jack or something like that. They didn't put over the belt at all as far as the announcers went. They didn't. Now, Jim, getting a little bit off subject, I remember when they introduced that belt in 1986. And going even further back, the Jack Briscoe, Terry Funk, Harley Race, Globe Dome NWA Championship belt was always my favorite belt. I mean, I bought a book which was about the belt, for God's sake. Oh, yeah. And I remember when they introduced what they called Big Goldie in 1986. I thought it was way too big, way too gaudy. Share your thoughts, Jim. I agree. The first time I saw it, I was like, what? It just looked so, yeah, gaudy is the word for it. But over time, it grew on me. But only that version, like, there was a few WWE versions when they had the world championship that have the WWE logo on it. And that one 
didn't look as good. There's something about that handcrafted one that Conrad Thompson owns that is just cool looking that none of the copies could match. So it's up there with my favorites now, but in the beginning, it took a while to warm up to. I had no idea that Conrad owned that championship belt. In the book, it said that uh, a store in North Carolina had it as part of a museum, but had, had, has Conrad purchased it since then? He's owned it for a while. I don't know exactly how the uh, chain of ownership went, but he's owned it for quite a while. I mean, I first met Conrad years ago at the Charlotte Fan Fest as just a fan who had the belt, so he's had it for a while. Okay, yo, I mean, go. Oh, he's the I mean, if I could own one thing in in the world, it would be that championship belt. So I'm I'm, I'm jealous of Conrad. Well, he's talked about that he's had offers of hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy the belt, and he's turned them all down. One because he doesn't need the money, obviously, and two because he just feels like that belt has been a gateway to so much of what he has. And what he's done in wrestling. Yeah, and it's it. You can obviously you can get a copy of the belt, and that's fine. But I mean, it's there's so much history there. I mean, they gave it to Jack Briscoe the night he be, beat. Well, no, he owns the, the big gold belt. He owns the big gold belt. Oh, wait, oh. does he own? Does he own the dome globe too? He might own the, own the dome globe too. Now that I think about it. No, you know what? It, it's it in makes that sense. frame. It makes sense that he owns the the. The the big one that Ric Flair had in 1986, the one that Ronnie yeah. Garvin and Sting had, but not the one beforehand. Now I understand. Yeah, sorry about that. No, that's okay. So more on Ric Flair getting fired. I mean, you, you mentioned Barry Windham and the television taping. You know, Rick said he was willing to lose the title, and then he didn't no-show the taping. He called in sick and allegedly... He really was sick. He had worried himself sick about his contract situation and everything that was going on, which, I, again, I my understanding is it's legit. Yeah, and here's the thing, is this is not 87 Barry Windham. This is fat. I don't really care anymore, Barry Windham. This is, I'm still really good, and I'm still talented, but my... Cosmetics are not as good as they used to be. My matches are still going to be good, but I'm not really trying that hard, Barry Windham. So it's like your top two contenders are Lex Luger, who has lost a million times on pay-per-view and at house shows, and to, to Flair, and it's fat Barry Windham. So it's like Jim Hurd also didn't really consider his options when it came to available top contenders to carry the title. No, one thing that WCW was not good at doing during this time frame is creating new stars. I mean, Ric Flair had wrestled Lex Luger so many times. He had wrestled Sting so many times. His matches in early 1981, his title defenses against El Gigante. El Gigante drew surprisingly well because the fans were just so tired of seeing Ric Flair against the same old guys. Well, yeah, and he's a huge, you know, he's a giant. And giants always, he's an attraction. So, yeah, before you got to, you got to see him, you know, he's an attraction. It's, 
It's different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um. I mean, and Ric Flair had been on WTBS as champion for 10 years at this point. You know, he first won the title in 1981. Now, starting in March 1985, he was on WTBS every single week. And let's just be honest, he was starting to get stale. He was starting to get stale, but it's like they'd killed so many people. You know, Brian Pillman was taking off, and they killed Brian Pillman. And it was just like so many people. It was They brought in these people that I thought were going to be trademark WCW stars. Tom Zink. You know, they had, remember those? kind of those drawing slash posters they hung up at center stage tapings. It's like I was ready for a new generation of stars. Pillman could have taken off. Tom Zink could have been like a world TV champion level guy, I think. Not a major guy, but kind of that level, like a Johnny B. Bad kind of level. Um, They had some people who could have been signature stars at certain levels, and for whatever political reason, they killed off all of them. They did. I mean, we did an entire show, like, right at the beginning of this podcast, I want to say, of how I I really believe I could have made a lot of money booking Tom Zank as a heel, because I've been around Tom Zank, and Tom was a funny, funny guy, but he had a, a just a natural arrogance about him, which, of course, you're going to have. The guy had GQ looks. And he literally won Mr. Minnesota in bodybuilding. And that, to me, that translates well into wrestling, except not as a good guy. He was almost like a Brad Armstrong, where he was, his stuff didn't really translate. He was trying to be a good guy. And there was a Brad Armstrong thing where he had this talent, but he couldn't connect with the fans because he wasn't being himself. And the same thing with Brian Pillman. I, I, I think Brian Pillman could have been a huge star as a babyface, but they yeah. kind of booked him as like, you know, this candy ass dancing around with the Cincinnati Bengals trunks. And that was not Brian. And it just came across as so phony to me. Yeah, he could have been much cooler. He looked like he could have been a cool, cool guy. But yeah, they just didn't book him in a cool way. Brian Pillman in real life was an unbelievably cool guy, a funny, cool guy who just, you know, and for whatever reason, they just wanted to transform him into this, this just generic babyface character. And you you notice that Pillman, when he was in ECW, even when he was with the WWF, he was a lot more successful because they let him be himself more, which, by the way, is, is, is crazy compared to 2021 WWF, where everyone is something that they're not. And God bless them. It's like the people they did push, like the Freebirds, the Jimmy Garvin, Fat Michael Hayes Freebirds, were terrible. It's like, I know they tried to have them sing, and their heels are supposed to be bad, but it wasn't heel bad. It was go away bad. It's like, they didn't push... The Midnight Express, we talked about that with Jim Cornette, ad nauseum, and just WWE today and WCW in this era has this problem of wanting to get heat, and everything's got to be heat, as opposed to 
booking what the fans want and what the fans enjoy, and they don't understand the morality play heat versus go away annoying heat. I will never stop being angry at what that company did with the Midnight Express. I mean, the Midnight Express were red hot when they won the tag team titles from Blanchard and Anderson that night in Philadelphia. They were over as baby faces, and yet the company decided that that's not the kind of baby faces they wanted. It doesn't matter what the fans thought. The fans loved the Midnight Express as heels, and then finally they got to cheer them as baby faces, and they just poured crushed ice over them the entire year of 19, all the rest of 1988 and into 1989. I mean, Jim, you know this, Jim, the, the Hornet, they left for about six weeks. They worked Continental, and that wasn't working. So they, they came back after not enough time off, in my opinion. And they were, they were just another tag team. And, and the Midnights were not just another tag team. They were the greatest tag team of all time. But, you know, it's just not what they wanted to push. Well, and also... You know, fans were not going to boo the Road Warriors. That's the other thing. You know, that that heel thing did not last very long because the fans weren't going to boo the Road Warriors because the Road Warriors were still the Road Warriors. And we're getting a little bit off topic, but actually we're not. Because getting back to Ric Flair, it just shows whether it's Dusty or it's other management that there's just this history of tone-deaf management, whether it's people who are in wrestling or outsiders coming in who don't understand wrestling, there's just this history of being tone-deaf, not reading the fans, and just not reading the room. That No, that's very well put. I mean, there was the rumor that the Road Warriors were turning, starting right around the Clash of the Champions in 1988, or dancing around with that idea. And I was, what, 22, 23 years old, and I knew better. And, as, and maybe six months later, they finally do the angle with Sting where they clothesline him. And, you know, Sting starts crying about his brothers in paint turning on him. And I knew. I'm like, you guys are killing Sting right now. You're killing yeah. him. And, of course, you know, Sting got booed in the arenas. Well, and also Sting. It's like everybody turned on Sting. Everybody turned on Sting. And he always saw it coming a million miles away. And it just it made Sting the dumbest baby face in the world. And it's like, that was the cool factor. In 88, when Sting went 45 minutes, the first clash, Sting was cool. And Sting was a boomer, but in many ways, he was the first Gen X wrestler. Came out. And he was loud. I can see and he that. He was obnoxious, and he wasn't your dad like Dusty Rhodes or Magnum with John Wayne and all this stuff. Because I was Gen X, and so Sting was—it's like looking back, you see Sting, and he was terrible on interview. He lost his place and everything, but he came out. At first, he definitely was. Yeah. I mean. You you could see why they, they had him at first, you know, having Eddie Gilbert do all his talking for him. I always saw him, he and the new breed, as like the first... He's got that look. I always saw him and the new breed as like the first ex-wrestlers. But Doug wouldn't book them 
as up and coming because they were young and they were kids. And it was frustrating because like all the wrestlers were like my dad as opposed to somebody young like me. And it took a long time before the Gen X wrestlers were really represented in pro wrestling. And I think there was probably a frustration. And there was always a frustration. I mean, you look at wrestling during this period, getting back to Flair, when he jumped to WWE, I think people were anticipating that WrestleMania match. And, you know, wrestling was down because of the steroid scandal and because of booking stuff like we're talking about. And, you know, I went through a rabbit hole preparing for this, looking through old observers from this time and house shows weren't drawing and nothing was drawing. And then Flair and Hogan, they didn't really sell out, but they were drawing like 14,000, 12,000, you know, compared to 6,000, 5,000 and freaking like 1,400 like WCW was doing. I mean, they were doing incredible business for a downtime. And then I think because Vince promised, I think from what I understand, Vince promised Sid so much to jump the WWE. It's like, that's why we never saw the idea of that dream Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair dream match. Yeah, we, we didn't see it at WrestleMania. They, they put it on the house shows almost right away. As soon as Rick got there, I thought they put it out there too fast, but they, you know, their business was down. They didn't want to wait. And I heard from a very good source back in 1991 that Sid was promised the main event at WrestleMania as part of his deal to, to jump to the WWF, which at the time was a giant surprise because Vince McMahon did not make promises, but he wanted Sid bad enough where he made that promise. And you know something? It's Ric Flair comes out, you know, like I said, I went down the 1991 rabbit hole and Ric Flair looks ridiculous on, what was it, Paul Bearer's funeral party. Ric Flair looks kind of out of place in, you know, this time frame, you know, there's IRS and there's The Undertaker and there's Paul Bearer, and there's all these over the, there's Repo Man, and there's all these ridiculous over the top characters, and Ric Flair doesn't really fit. And also, I think to wrestling fans, we wanted to see the WrestleMania match because we know that's what really quote unquote mattered versus the house show run. But there's another factor, something that I didn't think I realized back then, but kind of the way there's wrestling fans who only watch WWE. And to those WWE fans, the Road Warriors were ripoffs of demolition because, like, I remember when I was in high school, I took an art class and they wanted to do something with shadows. So I drew a pencil drawing, a charcoal drawing of the Road Warriors. 
And I remember one kid in class was like, well, they're not as good as Demolition. Otherwise, they'd be in WWE. And there's this level of fan. And I wonder, uh, one thing, I think Ric Flair's hair made him look old to the kids who were watching in that time frame. And also, I think to fans, they'd already seen Ric Flair in the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. That's an interesting comparison because there there are very much similarities to Ric Flair and Ted DiBiase with Ric Flair, you know, coming along four years later. I mean, I can tell you this, two things. Number one, I remember a fan saying, oh, yeah, you know, the, the WWF signed the Road Warriors. Well, no, they signed the Powers of Pain in 1988, and this guy thought they were the Road Warriors. This really happened. And number two, you know, WWF was considered the major league by everyone, and this is what I go by. I mean, I've said this on the show before. I used to do a radio show once a year here in Nashua, right before WrestleMania. And whenever someone called, they wouldn't say, when is Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Roddy Piper going to WCW? Never was that question asked. The question was always, when is Ric Flair, Sting, Lex Luger, the Road Warriors going to the WWF? Like, when are these guys, frankly, getting out of the minor leagues and hitting the big stage? Right. And, you know, I think Dave Meltzer talks about not only Sid, the reason that we didn't get the Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair WrestleMania match, but as it went the second time around the loop in various incarnations, whether it was one-on-one or various tag team matches, it didn't draw as well. And they thought that maybe they'd burned it out. But when Hogan jumped ship to WCW, and they put it on pay-per-view. I mean, clearly, there was still interest because the Bash at the Beach or whatever it was called drew really well for a WCW pay-per-view. And I think fans thought, well, Hulk Hogan's in Ric Flair country now, and maybe Ric Flair's going to get a fair shake, and we can finally see what's going to happen. And, well... With Hulk Hogan's creative control, you know, we saw what was going to happen and they burned it out. But, you know, I think there's a lot to say by what the platform is, whether it's WCW, Ric Flair or WWF, Hulk Hogan's backyard. Yeah. And and you talked about Hulk Hogan jumping to WCW. I mean, that was a really big get. I, I didn't think so at the time. But, you know, Eric Bischoff, to all of his negatives, I have some positive things to say about him. You know, we talked about in the in the 80s, early 90s, you know, when are the Road Warriors going to the WWF? Eric flipped the switch. He had people asking, when is Steve Austin going to WCW? When is Bret Hart going yeah. to WCW? And, you know, he, he turned for a little while WCW into the major league. And that was an impossible thing to do, I thought, in the 90s at one point. Well, that's a fantastic point, I think. That's a really, really, really good point. And I think it also goes to show with Ric Flair just how much he was underappreciated in his time and how much of a bigger draw that he could have been. But I think there's something about two things, that there are fans who only watch WWE and don't watch anything else because it is just quote-unquote the major league and also 
to fans like you and me who consume all wrestling, by that point in 94, we'd grown tired of Hulk Hogan. We've seen so much of Hulk Hogan since, you know, 79. But to be fair, Hulk Hogan does have his own platform and does have a huge fan base that did follow him to WCW and left WWE. So to be fair, when Ric Flair jumped in 91, there were people who did not know who Ric Flair was or just saw him as one, a small guy in the land of the giants or a guy, if he was so good, he already would have been in WWE. I've known a person for a long time who he was strictly a WWF fan and his response when Ric Flair first came on primetime wrestling, this was his first appearance in front of a WWF camera. Who is this small old man? I I mean, he'd never seen him before. And if you didn't know who Ric Flair was, Ric was going to have a problem getting over with your typical casual WWF only fan. Yeah. And I think, like for example, they would have it would have been better to have Ric Flair do his interactions not on the funeral parlor because he looks so out of place, but do it in the middle of the ring and have Gene Okerlund do it, and then have Hulk Hogan come out and give it then, you know, a bigger fight feel as opposed to trying to fit Ric Flair into these cartoony backdrops. He didn't fit that, but also. You know, Ric Flair talked about negotiating with Vince McMahon in 1988, and he would have been a guest on Brother Love at SummerSlam in 1988. And, you know, the size issue, I think, is a factor because of the land of the giants, but also the steroid scandal had a fact that wrestling was losing its popularity There were people who were, I think, cheated by Hulk Hogan because of the steroid scandal, and he lied on Arsenio Hall, and, you know, that was a big deal. But had, you know, Ric Flair come when Hulk Hogan was hotter and wrestling was hotter, was the timing an issue? It could have been. I mean... The WWF in 1991, I think, really could have used a breath of fresh air. It wasn't as much of an issue in 1988. You still had Hulk Hogan and a lot of the underneath guys were still over. By 91, I mean, Hogan felt like kind of old news. So did Savage. Piper a little bit, even though we, we had a break, a long break from Roddy Piper. Ric Flair came in. He feuded with all three of those guys. And I mean, like you said earlier, it drew. I mean, I went to both uh, Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan matches at at the Boston Garden. Man, I am lucky to have seen that live and uh, just a major bump in attendance, as as you had alluded to. Well, before we get into that real quick, I didn't want to ask you about that. The thing about SummerSlam 88 was also it was very much a theme of out with the old and in with the new as far as the matchups go, you know, the people were doing jobs on their way out of the company and Ric Flair coming into that time would have signified something as far as new, fresh matchups. And yeah, I mean, 
I was tired of Andre. They had burned out Macho Man. And that's another thing about WrestleMania 8 is that Macho Man, what a team player. He had lost so many times and done, you know, did the thing with Buster Douglas on the main event and humiliated himself so many times and been beaten by, before Ric Flair was, you know, Hulk Hogan's whipping boy, Randy Savage did it. And I am a firm believer that they could have kept the title on Savage through WrestleMania five, you know, because he was drawing his champion and then done the mega powers at like WrestleMania six and drawn him farther. But that's another show for another day. But what was the reaction as far as the attendance that you saw prior to Ric Flair and then after Ric Flair and during, during Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair. Okay. The attendance at the Boston garden had been declining slowly, but surely since like 1988, 1989, there were matches that got big pops, like, you know, Hogan versus Savage, like, you know, sold the place out or close to it, but that was a a spike. You know, the, the attendance was going down. I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, you'd go to the garden, a random show in, in 1991, and there would be like 4,000 people at its worst. And I was just used to, you know, the Bob Backlund era where it was standing room only almost every single month. And that's not an exaggeration. The place was full and it, it, it come down to this. And when Hogan and Flair finally came to Boston, the attendance spiked both shows. I want to say did right around 12, 13, more, probably more like 11, 12,000. There were some empty seats, but I mean, it it spiked the, it spiked the attendance and it just goes to show, you know, you would think Boston wouldn't be a Ric Flair town. Well, guess what? I mean, when the NWA first came to Boston in 1987, it drew 11,000 people for, for Ric Flair versus Barry Windham. So it wasn't just a WWF town. Like a lot of people think. How did the tag team matches do? Did you guys did you guys have a Roddy Piper Hulk Hogan versus Flair Undertaker or something like that? I don't think so. I, if we if we did, we forgot about it. I'm pretty sure, and I don't have it in front of me, that it was just Hogan versus Flair the first time, where it was a double disqualification. The second time, if I recall correctly, Hogan won on a countout or a DQ, and then they didn't bring it back. But like, I mean, I'm just thinking about this now. I am so lucky to have seen this live. Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, they brought it around, but they didn't do it as much as you'd think. Like, if you were to come to the Northwest, I would have loved to have seen that. Now, Jim, tell me a little bit about yourself. Like, when did you yeah. become a wrestling fan? I'm interested in this. So uh, my father died when I was eight years old, and my stepfather's from Mexico, and... um he watched wrestling. So he watched, we'd watch, started watching Portland wrestling. And I live in a, lived in a small town halfway between Seattle and Portland. So we would get both the Seattle and Portland TV stations at the time. So this is like 1978. So we would get Portland wrestling oh, oh, um, wow. at 8.30. And then I would get big time wrestling at uh, 11 o'clock. So we would get like the entire night of the Portland sports arena for like a number of years. So I grew up. And so initially I liked wrestling, 
you know, when I came in and saw Jimmy Snuka was what my first favorite, you know, my first show I saw to high school had Andre the Giant versus Buddy Rose and Ed Wiskowski as the main event. And it also had Jimmy Snuka and Bull Ramos and Jesse Ventura and Dutch Savage and two youngsters named Gino Hernandez and Skip Young. So just a plethora of talent, a ridiculous amount of talent at a high school in a small town in Washington. But once I saw Roddy Piper, when Piper came in and just set the territory on fire with his promos and stuff, then I was hooked and I was done. I was just, you know, wrestling is my thing. And, you know, I became obsessed. I am beyond jealous right now. That is crazy. I, I didn't know you had been around for this long. Oh, yeah. I mean, you got to see 1970s Portland wrestling every week. You got to see Piper and Martel and Hernandez and yeah. Jesse at the yeah. very beginning stages of their, of their career. That's awesome. Oh, God. You know, I always wanted in the WWF for Piper and Martel to team sometime because they were such a great tag team. As far as, you know, Piper brawled and Peak Martell was so smooth and acrobatic for the time. It was such a beautiful tag team. And, you know, I only got to go, I got to go to the Portland Sports Arena like a couple of times. And one of the times I remember was off TV. And so they did a tag team match where, Piper and Martell regained the tag team titles from the Sheep Herders. So it was just such an exciting time to see Piper and the hair matches with Rose going through the territory, shaving all the baby faces, hair, and then Piper finally declaring war and, you know, shaving the Sheep Herders and then finally getting his match with Buddy Rose, that hair match. You know, it was like, it was like nothing else, like nothing else. And, you know, that's another podcast for another time, because I'd love to come back on and, you know, talk about all that stuff anytime you want. I would love to hear about that stuff. One thing I want to know, though, because Portland did not get a lot of attention from the after magazines, and that's really the only news source we had out there. Yeah. Can you tell us the story about how Roddy Piper turned babyface in Portland? Yeah, you know, Piper came in as a heel. And um, Piper came in with the bagpipes. And, you know, he did his Jack Benny thing where he pretended to play the bagpipes poorly. And, like, I remember one time early in his run, he came to my town and people brought air horns. And they'd blow the air horns during his bagpipes. And he'd pretend to be mad and stuff. And it was just, Piper was so brilliant. So Piper had his... um, henchman his tag team partner which is killer tim brooks who they called bad news brooks because i don't think the washington commission would let him be killer that's funny those two were roommates and can you imagine what that apartment was like oh um you know i do the portland wrestlecast on the observer and i think i've got a free portland wrestlecast with johnny mantel who talks about that apartment and again that's another story for another time but um it was gross, to say the least. 
Anyway, <laughs> Piper was uh, was tag team partners with Killer Brooks, and Killer Brooks was kind of for those who don't know, was Bob Orton before Bob Orton, and you know he would hug on him and kiss on him and call him Brooksy, and you know he was his muscle, and like I said, he was very much the cowboy Bob Orton, and so you had Buddy Rose and Ed Muskowski, who were the top heel team, and then suddenly. You had this other top heel team, and they decided to form this killer alliance. Oh my gosh, you've got the top four heels, and they're going to get together and run Russia, and they had all the belts. They had a you know, wheelbarrow full of the belts. Right. Buddy is ever, you know, Piper was the Northwest champion. Piper and Brooks, I recall, were the Northwest tag team champions. And then this was the time where um, Roy Shire was using Portland talent. So Buddy Rose and Ed Wyskowski were Roy Shire's world tag team title. But watching Portland TV, you thought that they were the NWA world tag team titles holders because you didn't know any different. So they brought up this small wheelbarrow, brought up all their belts, and, you know, this like the Legion of Doom practically they were going to you know, run rough shots. So they decided to do a Survivor Series elimination tag team match, but it should never been done before. Well, so I had no idea the WWF stole that idea from Portland. That's all. Right. Of course they did. No, I mean, I'm sure they've been to other places. But they said, oh, yeah, let's do it like we did in San Francisco. Let's have it. So they had Ron Starr, Adrian Udonis, who were the top baby faces along with Hector Guerrero and George Wells, who were mid-card guys. And they did this elimination match. So, obviously, first eliminated are George Wells and Hector Guerrero somehow. It doesn't matter. So, then you've got Ron Starr and Adrian Adonis up against the four heels. Oh, my gosh, just goes to show they're going to control Portland wrestling. It's all going to be terrible. So then there's a mix-up, and Killer Brooks is covering Star Adonis, or no, Adonis is covering Brooks, and Ed Wyskowski was famous for this top rope knee drop, and he's going to come off the top rope on the one of the baby faces. I forget which one, it doesn't matter. And they move out of the way, and Ed Wyskowski knee drops Killer Brooks. And of course, Killer Brooks then gets covered. And they're furious. Piper is furious. They think they did it on purpose. How could you kill? And this is 78, so 79. So a knee drop off the top rope is hospitalization. You know, that's the worst thing you could do, practically. And so Killer Brooks is going to be put out of wrestling for a while. And Piper can't believe they did this. So then they break up, and there's just this huge breakup, and they end up forfeiting the match to the babyface because no one else is going to come out and face them. And for a little while, like the fans couldn't decide who they were going to boo or cheer. Like one time I remember Buddy Rose attacked Roddy Piper, and the fans cheered Buddy Rose because they hated Piper so much. Wow. And according to my friend, Rich Patterson, who was 
good friends with Buddy Rose. The plan was always going to be that Piper was going to be the baby face because Rose was just a better heel. But there was a little time, a little time where there was, um, it wasn't quite so black and white as far as who they were going to cheer. But eventually Piper did get cheered. And he was just, he was just amazing. He was so great. And I mean, seriously, if it wasn't for Roddy Piper and how awesome he was, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you today. Because, I mean, I had other interests. I liked wrestling. But when Piper came around, I was just like, oh, my gosh. Because the promos and this guy backed up what he said he was going to do. And he was just so great and so creative. And, you know, he was just awesome. And, you know, that's the other thing that's lost today. It's like you talk about the the after mags. And it was so funny because every territory had this on TV. You know, this is the toughest place. And this is the best competition. You know, everybody who came through Portland... Ric Flair always said that, and whomever has said that, and it was always frustrating as a kid. It's like, well, if we have the best competition, why are we featured in the aftermax? I mean, everybody admits this, that we're the best. And it was funny because as Piper went to Mid-Atlantic and Piper went to WWF as a heel, the only time we were acknowledged in the aftermax was apparently, and again, I don't know if this is true or not, but the Aftermax would acknowledge, we've got these letters from Portland fans asking, you know, why aren't you writing nice things about Roddy Piper? Because he was a good guy. And, you know, that was just the only time that we were really ever acknowledged in the Aftermax, except for maybe when Billy Jack was on fire in port in uh, in Florida. You know this. <laughs> we're gonna, we were going going to strictly talk. Well, not strictly talk about, but you know, Ric Flair getting fired. And I am beyond fascinated by this. The fact that you're so knowledgeable about Portland wrestling, and we're we're definitely going to have you back. We've only got a few minutes left, but one thing here's another thing I'm curious about. When I mean, let's face it, Portland kind of went, started going down the drain in the early 80s. Like, what was it like for you as someone who lived out there, someone who watched, kind of seeing it become more and more minor league in like 84, 85, 86? You know, it was frustrating to me because, you know, you could almost tie the downfall of Buddy Rose's career to the downfall of Portland wrestling. It's like when Buddy left to do his WWF run and he came back, yeah, he had a babyface run in 83 and stuff, but Portland was never the same. And he was never the same again when he tried to be a heel. And Rip Oliver was great. And he was a great baby. He's a great heel and stuff. But it's like they brought in people, God bless them, like Art Cruz and stuff. And it's like... Really? Yeah. And there was just... Uh, Oliver was great, but there was still lacking on the other side. I never bought in to Matt Bourne, except for when he was doink, 
he was great as Doink, but Matt Bourne. And also, same thing with Kurt Hennig, his skinny Kurt Hennig. I wasn't a big fan until he was, you know, AWA champion and more Mr. Perfect, but I guess you gotta grow. But, you know, Portland was great on her buddy, but there was just, I don't know if it was the money or just what, but also it was what the fans were buying. The fans were buying muscles. And they also brought in people. We mentioned Tom Zank. They brought in Tom Zank as the baby face in Portland, but then Tom Zank brought in Scott Doring, and Scott Doring was boring. And Steve Pardee, he came in a couple of times, and he's fine as like an opening match guy, but any hires, he was boring. They just had these guys who couldn't cut promos. Steve Pardee couldn't cut promos. Scott Doring couldn't cut promos. You know, and there was also uh, Ricky Vaughn, Lance Von Eric, who came in. And he was almost like, I remember going to a show in my hometown in 85, which they had promised Ric Flair was going to be on the show. But I saw on, on uh, you know, the TBS channel that Ric Flair was going to be at the Omni that night. So I was like, there's no way Ric Flair's going to be in a small town versus the Omni. And to their credit, when I went there that night, they had a sign up that said, Ric Flair's not here. And you know, to their credit. But I knew that night they put up a championship match. And I go, oh, I bet you sure enough they're going to change the title to Placate Fans. And they did. But it was very funny because Ricky Vaughn, which was Lance Von Eric in Portland, was on that show. And he was a babyface. And they introduced him. And there was a bunch of fans who booed him. And I was like, Whoa. looking back, I'm like, oh, my God, he's like the first John Cena. <laughs> that which makes is, sense. Which is funny because Portland fans were not known for having heel fans. No, that that totally makes sense. You know, I remember, like you said, Billy Jack Haynes got a lot of positive press from the after magazines when he was in Portland, as, as the Kiter magazines as well. And if you're a fan of Portland wrestling, it's got to be tough. You know, okay, we finally have this baby face that we can build around, and you know he's going to be gone soon. Yeah, but. You know, they tried to follow the formula, but there was just, like I said, I don't know if it was money, I don't know if it was recruiting, but there were just, they brought in people who couldn't cut promos, and wrestling was becoming more and more of a cosmetic business, and they're bringing in guys who were not that cosmetically peeling, and you know, weren't having great matches. Things were changing, and Portland was very, very traditional. And fans really liked it that way. And let me tell you, there were a lot of fans. You think promoters and wrestlers are hard to change. There was a core group of Portland wrestling fans who did not want to change, who weren't changing with the times, too. Let me tell you. Oh, I, I mean, that's, that's just human nature. Jim, I could hang out here talking with you for hours. You were an outstanding guest. Thank oh, you for taking the time, and I can't wait to have you back. That really means a lot to me. 
I hope we do it again really soon. And I mean this when I say this. I love this podcast. This is literally a must listen to every time it's uploaded. Um, it's, it is like listening to an after mag in podcast form. I absolutely love it. And I'm serious when I say that. So I hope we do it sooner rather than later. And I hope I become a regular on the show because I am seriously a huge, huge fan. Well, uh, thanks. Uh, that that means a lot to me. Thank you very much. And again, you were a great guest. Thanks for coming on. First, I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to apologize if there is some background noise. There is some background noise. As soon, literally seconds before Lou patched me in, I heard a truck pull up, and it's the landscapers, and they are making a ton of noise. So I apologize for that. I did not want to reschedule Jim because I've been wanting to have him on for a long time. So. We just got through it. So sorry about that. Well, I want to thank Lou Kippelman, our producer, who's going to make the probably make this sound really good. I'm, you know, I'm getting all concerned, but thank you, Lou. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Everyone have a good night, and may I wish you a better tomorrow. This concludes our podcast day.